You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Father Stephen Fields, professor of theology at Georgetown University. We sat down in the Gavin House Library to discuss Father Fields' scholarly work and his outlook on how Catholics should engage political liberalism. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Mark Franzen, and I'm the program coordinator here at Lumen Christi, and I am joined today by Father Stephen Fields, professor of theology at Georgetown University, where he has taught since 1993. Is that correct? <laughs> and Father Fields is author of Being a Symbol on the Origins and Development of Karl Rahner's Metaphysics, and most recently, Analogies of Transcendence, an essay on nature, grace, and modernity. He holds degrees from Yale, Fordham, Oxford, Weston Jesuit School of Theology, and Loyola College of Maryland. Uh, yesterday, Father Fields gave a lecture for the Lumen Christi Institute on the future of liberalism. Relativism confronts St. Augustine. And tomorrow, he will lead students in a master class on Karl Rahner's distinctive theology of the symbol. Father Fields, thank you for uh, sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure, Mark. I'd like to start, maybe if you could tell us a bit about uh, your background, not just as a scholar, but how you came to uh, your vocation in the Jesuits, and then also how you came to uh, a career in theology. Um, Yes, be happy to. Well, I went to a small liberal arts Jesuit school in Baltimore, Loyola College, founded in 1852. And when I started there in 1970, The school had any number of Jesuit professors, and there was a cadre of very committed lay faculty as well, all dedicated to the uh, canon of Western thought and to uh, the humanistic tradition, to doing Catholic philosophy and Catholic theology. And I, on the one hand, was fortunate enough to receive personal attention by any number of faculty in English and in philosophy and theology, who opened up for me the riches mainly of these three great disciplines. I was an English major, but I also majored in philosophy and theology. And I, as I went on, I was able to take advanced courses in philosophy and particularly in theology. And I discovered actually my life's work there. I, I had a seminar as a junior, which was called Logos and Theos, which was, uh, it was a seminar in the philosophy department, endeavoring to deal with the, the intersecting issues between philosophy and theology. And it was a great sort of con- intellectual conversion for a, you know, a boy of 19 mm-hmm. to have these seasoned professors expose me to, to Karl Barth and to, uh, it was the first time I read Karl Rahner, I was 19 years old, and I subsequently wrote a book on Rahner's metaphysics, did my doctoral dissertation at Yale on him, and tomorrow, as you say, I'm offering a seminar in Karl Rahner. I'm 65 now, so somehow 
46 years, mm. 46 years bore a great deal of, of fruit when I was 19 there because I was just terrifically excited by these ideas and that excitement has perdured. As far as vocation is concerned, I had a, a theology course at the same time, I was about 19 or 20, in the meaning of the church. And it was the first time it was given by a Dutch Jesuit who taught systematic theology in the grand old style. I mean, he began with the scriptures and then he went on to talk about what the theological tradition had said about the church. And then he did his own theological speculation. And he never took one question. No one dared speak <laughs> while he was speaking. And yet I learned a vast amount, not only of content, but also how to think theologically by simply listening to him. And what's more, that whole experience of learning what the church is, learning the, the infrastructure, if you will, the, the, the infrastructure of ideas of mm -hmm. what the very nature of the church is, was an aesthetic experience for me. Hmm. It was an experience of intellectual uh, uh, beauty that changed me. I think when I started at college, I had these vague ideas of uh, like every Georgetown undergraduate does nowadays of wanting to go into the foreign service or be a diplomat or uh, somehow travel the world in some kind of a job. And this course, this experience, this aesthetic experience of the beauty of the church just uh, turned me around. And I saw, first of all, how beautiful the church is. Secondly, how important it is, it came to me as to how valuable it would be to serve it as a priest, and lastly, also as a Jesuit, because I knew Jesuits were in education. So I thought, what a valuable thing it would be for me to do for others what had just been done to me hmm. at the age of 19 or, or 20. And so uh, here I still am wearing a Roman collar and uh, out in Chicago talking to you about it. You mentioned um, now a nearly 40-year relationship with uh, theologian Karl Rahner. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of who Rahner was and what you take to be uh, his importance in Catholic theology today. Yes. Well, Karl Rahner was a German Jesuit thinker, both philosopher and theologian, who was born in 1904 and died in 1984. And he, what is important about him, a couple of things uh, that to me are vitally important. First of all, he is one of the most creative interpreters of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. We have had and are likely to have for a long time. His whole idea is is not simply to treat St. Thomas as if you're going to a Thomistic museum, you know, and looking at the bones mm -hmm. of, of Thomas. His whole idea is that the corpus of Thomas is, is a living corpus, mm. that, that he is, of course, as he is called, the, the common doctor. There is an authority to the work of Thomas, but the authority to the thought of Thomas is that it's a living body whose genius is capable of dialoguing with the trends of modern thought. And so Rahner's great, contri great contribution, one of his great contributions, is to interpret Aquinas, to read Aquinas through what Rahner calls the problematic 
that is the issues and concerns about the nature of reality, the nature of God, the nature of the good, the nature of the true, that come to us from the, the tradition of Kant to Heidegger. And uh, in Rahner's view, the Enlightenment tradition that begins in Kant and continues to develop into Heidegger through people like Hegel and the German idealist tradition, these ideas are what have constituted modernity. And so if we read Thomas with the issues that constitute modernity in mind, we are likely to find rich answers in Thomas to these very questions. But of course, these are questions that Thomas himself didn't answer. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that his corpus does not contain mm -hmm. insight and answers. So this is what Rahner is trying to do, liberate in Thomas's 13th century thought, insights and answers that will address concerns of our own time. How is that approach situated in, in contemporary Thomistic thought? Is it a dominant mode in theology? I would have to say, I, I would have to say, unfortunately, and here you, you perhaps are, are getting feels the prophet. <laughs> I'm terrifically disappointed, I have to say, with the, the general state of Catholic theology. And this is one reason why I feel that, you know, a return or resourcing of Rahner is very important. Why? What is my main criticism of the way Catholic theology is being done now? It's Rahner has said something that you, you would certainly find the fathers of the church saying. You would find somebody like a Justin Martyr from the second century saying this. Rahner says, unphilosophical theology is bad theology. That is, if, you, if we try to, to do systematic theology, and by systematic theology I mean that effort of the intellect that tries to show the internal coherence of all of the doctrines of revelation. If we try to do systematic theology without philosophy, and by that I mean without metaphysics, mm -hmm. metaphysics, as this, which Aristotle called the science of being, as being, mm -hmm. being qua being. In other words, existence itself and the very structure and causes of being and existence. If we try to do theology without metaphysics, we are merely going to have a watered-down, topical, and even ideological theology. And what bothers me, uh, what troubles me so much in, in the current climate is that that is precisely what much the theology has become, ideological, hmm. topical. It has lost its ability to speak universally. Because after all, any message or revelation from God is a saving message that is designed precisely to be universal. Universally true, universally accessible and available to everyone, and the only way that you can unpack the data of Revelation, by that I mean the scriptures, the message of the church that carries on the scriptures, the message that, that is embodied first and foremost in the person of Christ, is by a universal science that teases out the universality of the message. 
that's a great <laughs> case for systematic theology as the way for theology to move forward. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your lecture yesterday, which was on a very different topic, the future of liberalism. You mentioned in your lecture, you invoked St. Augustine to suggest ways in which Catholics can participate in a liberal in a liberal society today while avoiding sort of two extremes. On the one hand, an excessive confidence in liberalism that tends to end up being very disappointed when things go wrong. And on the other hand, a kind of undue retreat from society, a circling of the wagons that attempts to sort of preserve uh, values, preserve culture, uh, sort of apart from mainstream society, mainstream culture. And you attempted to sort of provide a, a sort of middle ground, an Augustinian view based on Augustine, the city of God, which, which presents an attempted realism. Can you talk a bit about both what the insight is that Augustine has into the situation in the Roman Empire and how it translates to our time? Well, thank you for that question, Mark. First of all, I mean, I think I would probably say you and my friends here at the Lumen Christi Institute, together with myself, have a great deal of sympathy for those like Patrick Deneen, to, to some extent Ross Adaltat, and Rob Dreyer, those who have, to some extent, Rusty Reno, those who have in the public press been highly critical of, of liberalism. And the problem, of course, with liberalism is pretty patent to, to many of us, especially us, to us Catholics who, who believe that liberalism has lost its mooring in the laws of nature and nature's God. And that that loss of mooring in the laws of nature and nature's God has left us in a relativist world. But the problem is, as, as I would like to say to my friend Patrick Deneen and to, and to other critics, other harsh critics of liberalism, what are the other, what are the options? I mean, let's face it, the human mind can only conceive of so many options for a government. And those options extend from something as close to anarchy, but not quite anarchy, although there would be some who feel that the best form of government would be an anarchy. And on the other hand, some form of fascism or totalitarianism or even a theocracy. So what have you got but some kind of option in between which avoids those extremes and yet at the same time gives license to the social con the whole idea of a social contract that is based on the consent of of the people and is responsible to the people and which respects toleration a great liberal value so that's the problem what do you do when as a catholic you believe that the laws of nature and nature's God ought constitute the good in an environment which is relativistic. Now, my attempted answer to that problem goes back to how St. Augustine looked at the Roman Empire. And the first thing he observes about the Roman Empire in the City of God, and I'm talking about mainly books 5 and 22 of the City of God, he is unapologetic 
about the corruption of the Roman Empire. He starts from that basis. Rome had a savage addiction to slavery. The Romans were dedicated to their own glory and their own vanity, he says. And they suborned the consciences of individual Romans into the perpetuation and glorification of Rome's own reputation. So he is totally unabashed about speaking about the corruption of Rome. And I think it's good for, for our conservative uh, you know, friends who tend to be very critical about liberalism to, to recall that. However, in the midst of his criticism of Rome, he also realizes that Rome fulfilled its most important obligations under the natural law, which was to provide a society of order and peace. We have the Pax Romana, after all. Order and peace. And so what does he say? Insofar as the Roman Empire fulfilled primary obligations under the natural law, it was acting nobly in the name of God, despite its other corruptions. It provided an opportunity precisely for Christians to live in a tranquil, peaceful, ordered world where they could pursue what we Christians ought to be pursuing. And that is the life of prayer and worship of God on the one hand and service of neighbor on the other hand. Now, of course, he's very clear. He said, now, wait a minute. My higher view of the Roman Empire as acting in the name of God is predicated on the fact that Rome, although it had many failings, many moral failings, and was corrupt in many ways, my view, he says, is predicated on the fact that Rome did not force anyone to go against his or her conscience. Now, of course, Augustine is writing at a time after the last persecution, mm -hmm. which was under Diocletian. So we know the story, of course, of many Christians who gave up their lives because they were forced to do by Rome to do something wrong. But Augustine is talking about a post-persecution time. And he is arguing that as long as a government provides peace and order and tranquility and does not compel us to be evil, we ought accept that government we ought be loyal to that government. We ought cooperate with that government. And we ought at the same time to realize that it isn't the government or the state that is ultimately going to provide our final salvation and happiness. That, our final salvation and happiness, comes only from grace, only from God, and that it should be our main purpose in life to work out our salvation in fear and trembling before God. So he says, he has a very moving line. What does it matter under what government a dying man lives? And of course, what he means is, we're all dying. We're born to die because death is our gateway into eternal life. What does it matter what government a dying man lives under, provided he is not compelled by that government to do impiety or iniquity? And I think that, frankly, we need to realize this. 
We need to have, in our own day and age, we need to realize this about liberalism, that liberalism does provide certain decided goods. It provides a middle ground between anarchy and authoritarianism. It carries the precious cargo, as I say, of, of toleration. It provides peace and order in which we can live out our Christian vocation. Up to this point, it has not compelled us to impiety or iniquity. And so therefore, I think that however harsh we might be of liberalism's corruption, of its relativism, still we need to be realistic about what our place is and what our role here is in this world. It's not to be happy with a government. It's to practice our Christian faith and move ourselves on in the life of God, hopefully find our way to the beatific vision. And I don't think uh, everything that I've said uh, up to this point could be construed as advocating a certain passivity in, in the face of, of things that, that give us moral outrage. And by those things, I mean such things as abortion and probably same-sex same -sex marriage and uh, the threat that's always on the horizon of uh, Catholic institutions being compelled to provide contraception uh, to, uh, to all of its employees. So, on the one hand, what I guess I want to say is I don't think that we're in any position to, to replace liberalism or, or drastically to alter the, the basis and foundation of its social contract, which in some ways means that the, rel the moral and ethical relativism that we, we live with in our own time is not easily going to, to go away and that we have in some way to come to terms with it. On the other hand, uh, I do want to avoid, and I think Augustine does avoid, arguing for uh, a passivity, a moral and ethical passivity, where one simply accepts the status quo. And I, I think Augustine would frankly say that this is clearly not Christian. Mm -hmm. We Christians always have to, ha have to labor in the world whatever state we find the world at whichever time we happen to be uh, to to live in whether we live you know in the time of uh, of uh, relativism or whether we live uh, in some other time a time of great war and upheaval we're always we're always called if there's always the mandate of the gospel to bring the values of the gospel to whatever horrors and evils that we are confronted with so Surely the Christian's role is to labor against, to work against, to give witness to life, to give witness to the natural value of male and female in a union for life for the sake of the procreation of the next generation. And certainly to work against government policies that would impose on us material cooperation with evil. But what happens if we, we lose? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happens if and when uh, we are outnumbered? What do we do then? Do we, do we then wholesale withdraw our cooperation from the state? Or do we then say that it's time to replace the liberal state with 
some other form of government. I couldn't, can't imagine what that other form mm -hmm. of government could possibly be, as long as if it wants to avoid anarchy on the one hand and authoritarianism on the other hand. I think uh, if we are forced to face such a situation, I I do not think that that Augustine would license our wholesale withdrawing our support from the liberal state. We have to realize, once again, that as long as order and peace is provided, the liberal state is acting in the name of God. On the other hand, if we are forced to do certain things by the government that violate our conscience, we clearly have to say no and suffer the consequences. But to withdraw our support from the liberal state, I think, would be highly misguided. I think Augustine would not have patience with that. I don't think Edmund Burke would have patience with that. Mm. And because the great danger is that we would unleash greater violence and chaos, and so the cure would be far worse than the disease. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking time and talking with us. And we're very grateful to have you here in Chicago. And uh, we look forward to your seminar tomorrow. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Father Stephen Fields, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.